Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. This is Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. A lot of uh, big tech announcements in the news this week. First, at the top of our list was uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos announcing that he would be stepping down and that he would be passing the reins off to Andy Jassy, who is uh, has been running AWS, really been in the, if you will, the shadows of Jeff Bezos for uh, for many, many years. As, Decades. Yeah, as Bezos even mentioned, he's been at Amazon almost as long as as Jeff Bezos himself has been. So uh, he, he has been there for um, some time. And so there's a lot of uh, discussion about where Amazon goes from here. Obviously, we're where Jeff Bezos wants to go is to the moon and back, presumably, or to <laughs> Mars and back. He has for many years been talking about his most important work is uh, around space exploration, and he wants to spend some more time there. But he'll still be involved in, I think, new projects for Amazon, looking at new opportunities. Amazon, as we've discussed on this podcast now uh, for a long time, is that a really important inflection point where it's going to have to grow into new businesses and new markets in order to continue to, to grow? And it's going to have to scale some of these opportunities very, very quickly into, uh, into very large opportunities as well in order to really continue to grow the organization. So I think, um, well, there's a lot of talk that Jeff will be focused on going to space and space exploration, I think it's also that he will be focused on how to grow Amazon beyond its core markets. And what's the, uh, the old Casey Kasem quote? Keep your uh, head, head in the stars and your feet on the ground. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, no, he, he's uh, going to be focused on more than uh, just Blue Origin, although uh, you're right, Sean, he has identified that as his uh, biggest long-term uh, priority, uh, I guess, uh, his, his legacy more, more than anything else. Uh, but he'll also be devoting time to uh, some of the philanthropic and environmental efforts that uh, he has been involved in, like the, the Day One Fund, um, the Bezos Earth Fund, and also uh, a little newspaper called uh, the Washington Post. Uh, so he's, uh, it's, I think, going to be very interesting to see uh, what he can do there spending more of his, uh, his time focused on, on journalism uh, and publishing. But, um, uh, but you're, you're also, Sean, absolutely right about, uh, you know, the, the markets that uh, Amazon has to move into, uh, has to expand in order to grow. I think a lot of the coverage I've seen around the transition focuses on uh, either one of two things that uh, Jassy, who had been, uh, you know, as you mentioned, not only the head of AWS, but really the founder of it, uh, you know, the guy who sort of came up with the idea and, and pitched it internally, because he has been so uh, closely identified with it. You know, some people are trying to read the tea leaves and say, well, you know, uh, AWS is, you know, such, such a profitable part of Amazon compared to retail. You know, we think that they're going to exit retail, uh, which of course is, you know, a tremendous uh, business that they continue to invest uh, in just this week, uh, rolling out um, a new fleet of, of electric vehicles that they have uh, custom, had custom uh, de developed to their specifications. Uh, and, um, 
uh, and you know, just just emphasize uh, AWS. Uh, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I think that the and, and you know, I've also seen coverage like in the Times today about how you know we can expect uh, Jassy to kind of stay the course and not to expect too much change. I think maybe on some level that's true, but I, I think that you know if uh, Jassy has really taken lessons away from uh, from Bezos, uh, it's the need to continually reinvent uh, the company, uh, and you know that's that's really the what Amazon has excelled in uh, to some extent, even more than the success of their mainstream businesses. So, uh, Sean, you you've spoken a number of times uh, on the podcast about the health opportunity ahead of them. Uh, we're clearly in the very early days of that with uh, PillPack and, and Amazon Pharmacy. Uh, they have the investment in Zooks, the self-driving uh, car technology, which may be leveraged into a, you know, some kind of on-demand transportation or, or delivery uh, fleet, or perhaps uh, an Uber competitor. Who, who can say? You know, and I'm sure there's a dozen other things uh, being developed in the skunk works that just haven't been made public yet. So, so yes, I think on, you know, I certainly wouldn't expect him to, uh, you know, on, on day one announce that, uh, you know, they're exiting retail. Uh, but, uh, but I do also think that, you know, we're, we're going to see more diversification uh, as, uh, as this new era comes in and also uh, a very different, uh, as we've also discussed on the podcast many times, a very different regulatory environment than uh, Amazon was operating in for much of its uh, growth into the uh, you know $2 trillion company that it is today. And, and this may be the biggest challenge that he faces. This transition, which will take place this summer, comes at a really interesting time, not only in Amazon's own history and trajectory, but also in the, the trajectory of all tech mm-hmm. companies. Right. Uh, we saw, um, you know, some news coming out this week. Also, that the incoming head of the Senate Senate Antitrust Clo- Klobuchar, yeah, Klobuchar, yeah. Uh, is introducing antitrust bill that could potentially raise the bar for tech acquisitions. Uh, and so, you've got Amazon at this really interesting inflection point where they're changing the the face of the executive office, if you will, the really, uh, the, the head of the, uh, of Amazon. And you, you're at a time where you need to grow the organization and you need to move into all of these other spaces, but some of those early acquisitions that become key ingredients for future growth are probably going to see a lot more scrutiny than they have in the past. Uh, historically, these large tech companies could come in and they could easily acquire, uh, for the most part, some of these ingredient technologies that they then pull together to create these new, these new market opportunities. So it isn't the Instagram and WhatsApp purchases that I think will, uh, will see the most scrutiny. Obviously, those are going to see tremendous amount of scrutiny, but it's going to be these small acquisitions that Apple, Amazon, Microsoft all do oh, all the time, yeah, all yeah, the time, constantly, the course, constantly. Of the, course of the year. Some of those are talent acquisitions. So they buy a company, they close it down. They, they keep the staff. Right. Uh, obviously they help uh, funding in many instances to allow these companies to continue to operate. They integrate them into a much bigger organization or platform. So there, I think there will be a lot of challenges 
moving forward, not only finding those areas of growth, but also putting together all the right pieces that are needed in order to fully take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, one of the areas that Amazon has, has noted in the last week that they will continue to invest in is gaming. Uh, there was a, uh, what I'll say, critical Bloomberg report about some turmoil in their gaming division. Andy Jassy sent, sent an email to staff saying that um, we believe that there's still a lot of opportunity here. Uh, writing in that uh, that email, some businesses take off in the first year and others take many years. Though we haven't consistently succeeded yet in AGS, I believe we will if we hang in there. So they seem very committed to uh, their commitment there. Uh, we also saw other news related to that gaming cloud environment from Google, that uh, Google is closing down some of their studios and that they are going to focus on third-party games for their Stadia platform as opposed to launching their own, uh, their own proprietary games. So uh, some shifts taking place on that front with respects to Google. Yeah, I think that first-party game development, it's, uh, it's challenging. I, I think it's like any portfolio business or any media portfolio business, uh, with the exception that it takes a lot more uh, time and resources to develop a AAA level title uh, than it does to sign a hot new music artist. And maybe maybe comparable to uh, you know developing a, a big budget movie, uh, perhaps. But you know even there in Hollywood, uh, you know, there's sometimes a reluctance to make those kinds of uh, big bets outside of an established franchise, uh, which is why, you know, it's uh, been so important for Disney to, to have uh, franchises like Marvel and Star Wars and uh, Warner Brothers to have the, the DC uh, equivalent and uh, Universal to have Harry Potter. So um, uh, gaming is uh, just... Uh, to me, it, it seems like something that just brings together so many uh, things that Amazon is good at. Uh, you, you know, you have a customer base, you have uh, devices in the home, you have uh, a, a lot of uh, understanding about AI and, and processing uh, from AWS. You have serving capability from AWS. Uh, you know, probably maybe, maybe they don't have the kind of developer connections uh, that uh, that certainly an Apple has or Microsoft has. Uh, you would have thought maybe Google had some stronger ties there, maybe because of Android. But while there are a lot of games on Android, there are not necessarily a lot of you know AAA uh, titles uh, on Android, or it just doesn't seem to be the platform of gaming innovation, let's put it that way. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of games on it because of its installed base, but a lot of the um, uh, showcase uh, in, in terms of new graphics and things tend to happen on uh, iPhone uh, first, um, which makes sense because it's an easier platform to control almost uh, you know, somewhere between the PC and, and console worlds, uh, I would guess. So. Um, you know, I, I would agree. I, I think I think it is a, a good opportunity for them, and uh, it's been interesting to contrast 
Amazon's and Google's approaches here. Uh, obviously, both are in the cloud uh, computing space. And uh, I think for some time, Amazon has had a franchise extending AWS to various game development teams uh, and, and you know, serving components for games. Uh, and uh, I think Google Cloud and the enterprise in general has been just a much stronger focus for Google over the past few years. So uh, I think in, in terms of what they're doing with Stadia, it's, it's turning it more into that kind of turnkey uh, for Google Cloud versus, uh, I mean, I, you know, it'll, it'll, some things are unclear. You know, I, I guess it'll still compete with Luna, which is uh, Amazon's first party cloud gaming service. But, um, uh, but you know, it seems to me that, that Google is, uh, in contrast to what you, the statement you just read from, uh, from Jassy, like quicker to pull the plug on things, uh, cer certainly than they were in the past, uh, in, in their earlier days, um, thinking about big bets like YouTube. Alphabet continues to make big bets, but it seems like Google uh, is, is, has pivoted more to the fail fast uh, school, so as, as opposed to Amazon, which may be a little bit more deliberate uh, in terms of things that it rolls out, like Luna, you know, they were kind of late in that space, but, but they're, they're giving it uh, a lot of breathing room to grow. Well, and obviously they own Twitch, which can fit. Oh, sure. Another that, huge asset, of course. Fit into that environment as, as well. Uh, at the end of last year, when Google released Stadia's roadmap for 2021, it included 400 plus games and only really a small share of those games were uh, first party games. So Google mm -hmm. really was still early on focusing on uh, being a platform for third party developers. Uh, with this move, Google will close down its two game studios, one in, in Montreal, one in Los Angeles. And uh, that will impact 150 plus of developers that were working on, on first party games. But uh, I, I don't think this is the end for Stadia. And, and to your point, Ross, Google has reversed course a number of times. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if Stadia starts to gain any traction at all, you could see them uh, make other investments or acquisitions that would bring in some first-party games or games that are exclusive to the, to the Stadia platform. One of the things I saw at CES this year was that LG announced Stadia would become natively supported on some of their uh, forthcoming TVs. So I think that's a really interesting direction for cloud gaming services that they will become native to televisions as the Silicon get, it gets better uh, that's being included in televisions. And then we also saw that Google TV has an operating system uh, is going to become more important. Both TCL and Sony announced uh, televisions running Google TV. And I think Sony is exclusively using Google TV. Yeah, Sony, Sony was an early adopter of Android TV. So they're remaking that interface yep. uh, to make it friendlier. TCL is, is a nice win for them, though, because they had very much been in the Roku camp uh, prior to this. And, and the, yeah, and the Amazon camp as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, and you have to presume, while it wasn't announced at CES, you have to presume that Stadia would become natively supported sure. in any television that's running Google TV. So there's some, still some really interesting inroads to get Google, Google Stadia in more 
uh, houses and green, gain greater support. They don't see first party games as being key to that right yeah, it's now. It's not going to drive. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Are, can they have a first party hit big enough where it will drive Stadia? And the, you know, the answer for now is probably not compared to these marquee third party titles. So I think that's the the direction we'll see them going at, until they, of course, reverse course and, and, <laughs> and go back to something else. And the other news that we wanted to hit on this week are rumored products coming from Apple. Uh, these will be slated for 2022 and 2024, which means that they will be rumors that we will continue to discuss and hear about <laughs> every single week. Probably until, at least until 2026. Until 2026, that's right. Uh, the first is Amazon, excuse me, the first is Apple's rumored VR headset, which will cost about $3,000, feature 8K displays, and includes dozens of, of cameras. Uh, Ross, as you pointed out, you know, $3,000 for a high-end mixed reality, extended reality headset really isn't the, that much. It is when you compare it perhaps to some of the other VR headsets like the Oculus Quest 2, which comes in at 299 But when you compare it to what Microsoft has in, in the marketplace, and if it has any enterprise-oriented focus at all, then really $3,000 isn't that much, especially once we you know get out to 2022, that price point could be much different. Uh, sure. it's uh, I, I would say it tracks uh, very much in line with a few things. Uh, the HoloLens, of course, uh, also high-end, uh, uh, VR and uh, AR headsets from companies like Vario, which uh, do a great job um, in terms of the visual acuity uh, and develop custom optics, as I'm sure uh, Apple is, is also doing. Uh, in terms of some of the rumored specifications of this thing, it, uh, it very much tracks along the timeline we're seeing from uh, companies like, uh, like Qualcomm, uh, which has been very active in developing uh, extended reality chipsets. So I think uh, the one that they released last year, uh, XR2, uh, had support for something like seven cameras. You know, we're talking about 12 maybe for this one in a couple of years. Uh, and that allows you to do uh, a number of things in AR that this is rumored to do, like being able to, you know, both see uh, stuff projected into your eyes, fa face track, you know, facial tracking, being able to see your hands and you know use your hands as a controller, uh, we you know Sean, you and I chatted a bit before the podcast about who is this for? You know, as an enterprise product, uh, and uh, I, I think that you have to think of it as a precursor to something that will ultimately be uh, more in their consumer sweet spot at at a fraction of the price. Uh, well, maybe not a, a small fraction, maybe maybe about half the price, uh, but um, you know because we we do see quite a bit in that middle ground, uh, especially in VR uh, headsets from HP and uh, Valve and, and other companies in that sort of you know eight hundred to twelve hundred dollar range. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, you know they're uh, at, at a three thousand dollar price point it's clearly a professional tool and uh, you know th those uh, headsets have uh, been supporting businesses uh, on the backs of uh, engineers designers uh, people working with computer-aided design 
Uh, so for uh, for the prof- it's a for for the professional market, where you know you could argue that they've done a good that they that they've done a good job penetrating that with their AR efforts to date, uh, using tools like like iPad and uh, and, and iPhone, and uh, just leveraging uh, off that uh, in terms of their AR uh, AR kit. Uh, technology that's driving it. So I, I would, you know, kind of think of it as an extension of that uh, and something that, you know, may, may be a nice complement uh, to their uh, efforts in the enterprise where they, they've had a lot of, uh, a lot of success with, with iPad and iPhone. I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think this is still very early for them. It's obviously something they've been working on for some time, mm-hmm. uh, Given what we've heard about it thus far, it feels like any of the other prototypes we see Apple working on, it has everything included in it because they're still figuring out what it, they want sure. it to do and, and what that platform will look like. I think to me, the, the biggest question that Apple needs to be thinking about or, or that probably they are thinking about is not the hardware because we've already shown that the hardware is possible, but it's what are the use case scenarios look like? It's content. Totally. You know, it's, I think it's, particularly, particularly for AR. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's what does the content look like? And from Apple's standpoint, how do they monetize it? How are they going to monetize it? Are they going to empower third-party developers that are going to sell apps that run in that? And that's the, sure. that's, that's been the formula. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's for a couple of their other fun. platforms, but is sure. it, is there something else that they might try instead? Um, do they do they take an Apple Plus type approach to VR content, for example, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. make it part of a, a subscription bundle? So I think as much as we see the rumors about the hardware, what we don't see yet is what the bringing it to market will look like and what the broader ecosystem will look like. And Apple want to, will want to own as much of that as they can. I, I, I think you, you're already starting to see the seeds of it uh, in terms of some of the stuff they're doing on the watch uh, with, with fitness and these these walking tours that they just uh, released for for the Apple Watch. It's, it's easy to see how AR could uh, slot right into that kind of content. And they're getting a lot of competition on some of these as well. I mean, obviously, Peloton still has a, a strong hold of that home fitness area, but we saw sure. a lot of announcements at CS in the last month around some of these things. Samsung introduced their virtual trainer where you can add webcams to their televisions and that mm-hmm. will enable them to provide real-time coaching. We saw um, some other home gym approaches to that. So there's, there's a lot of competition there. And there will be a lot of competition for AR and VR content. So I think Apple will really want to uh, figure out ways to make that really a seamless experience for users. Just just, uh, making me work harder for excuses not to work out. That's That's, right. uh, That's what it comes down to. Uh, And and the other, of course, big announcement or rumor uh, is that uh, sources familiar with Apple's interests... (laughs) Uh, say that Apple is close to signing a deal with Hyundai, the uh, car manufacturer, to introduce the Apple car, which they would like to manufacture here in North America, slated to launch in 2024. It will uh, be obviously an electric vehicle. Uh, the, The reports are that Apple is working with Hyundai because Hyundai will give them full control or or at least a, a large percent of control 
over both the software and hardware stacks. And I think that will be important for Apple. And if you look at the history of Apple with the original iPhone and, and working with, you know, AT&T because it offered exclusivity, I could see Apple wanting to control a lot of this. And, and I would think that Apple has probably designed a lot of this already in-house and will want to uh, make that part of it. it. It is interesting to me that they are working with somebody like, like Hyundai instead of uh, Magna, which is a well-known contract manufacturer in the automotive space. They, of course, make vehicles for companies like BMW, but uh, Apple instead is partnering with a company to, uh, to build what will be the Apple car. Yeah, I mean, um, there could be any number of economics, uh, uh, economic factors in line there. I think I saw one thing that was drawing Apple to Hyundai was that it had uh, excess uh, capacity, uh, but uh, there have also been reports that uh, Hyundai is wrestling internally with the issue of whether they want to be uh, Apple's partner here, despite the potential multi-billion dollar investment that, uh, that Apple would make uh, in, in Hyundai, uh, particularly as uh, Hyundai is trying to elevate its uh, position in, in the market, uh, trying to get, get deeper into the luxury segment with its, uh, with its Genesis uh, car brand. Uh, and apparently historically has a, uh, also has a, uh, a history of kind of being vertically integrated and, and doing things its own way. So uh, that, that sounds like a potential <laughs> culture clash, uh, but, uh, but there have also been reports that Apple uh, may be looking for secondary uh, partners as well, uh, potentially in Europe. So, um, uh, but, uh, but yes, to your point, they would probably want to launch with an exclusive partner, uh, one that, that has good understanding of infrastructure or, uh, or, or the you know, uh, manufacturing of, of maybe certain components that they need. You mentioned the iPhone launch. It also reminds me a little bit of the Apple Card launch uh, where they partnered with uh, Goldman Sachs uh, on, on the back end. Um, you know, in both of those cases though, uh, in, in, in the terms of AT&T and, uh, and, uh, and, and Goldman Sachs, you know, they, they were not in retail competition uh, Goldman Sachs a, a wee bit these days, but uh, you know, but but AT and T did not make smartphones, of course, and um, and and that's going to be interesting to see them navigate that. Uh, part of a, a trend of them increasingly competing uh, with uh, some of their partners, uh, where they have uh, today done deals to put um, Apple uh, CarPlay in just about you know, every model of car uh, available. And uh, obviously they're going to have a, uh, one, one would imagine a far more integrated uh, experience in, uh, in, in this Apple car. So, and Sean, you were also mentioning potential implications for Tesla uh, earlier. That was kind yeah, of their I mean, worst nightmare, right? It's gotta be their worst nightmare because if you look at the core buyer of a Tesla today, it's somebody who, who would I think be very attracted to an Apple car. And, you know, and I mean, we are several years out from Apple even releasing a car that you could, mm. that you could order, then actually getting it will be impossible. But, you know, I think if you're, the demand I think is going to far outstrip supply early on. 
So I think if you can get a hold of an Apple car, you buy it, the resale market's going to be, a, you know, there's going to be some premium there. It just, it surprises me that uh, that Tesla stock hasn't taken uh, really any notice in the, the potential for an Apple car. And maybe because it's so far out mm. uh, and still very much in the rumor stage, but I, I would expect that this is a pretty negative event for Tesla when it does come to fruition, if it does come to fruition. And, and also, of course, coming on the heels of GM announcing that it is uh, planning to move exclusively to uh, electric vehicles. And uh, of course, that's setting off other uh, reverberations in the, uh, in the industry uh, in, um, among some of the European car manufacturers, et cetera. Yeah, so it'll be really interesting. And as I mentioned, we'll probably continue to get this rumor every single week. So we will <laughs> inevitably be updating it uh, on a regular basis on this podcast. So I encourage you to tune in next week to see if there's any new breaking news on either of these rumors. And, uh, and if not, obviously, episodes in the future. Uh, with that, we'll close out this week's episode. I am Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for joining us.